we have a treat for you in our latest episode of Soundtracking, what with it being Christmas and all, with not one guest, but three. First up is the delightful Bryce Desner of The National, who scored the Netflix film Two Popes, starring Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price as the eponymous pontiffs Benedict and Francis. Then there's something for all you Avengers fans with a very entertaining turn from Infinity War and Endgame writers Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. Before we unwrap all of that, though, a word from our friends at Encoda, which is like Spotify, but for musicians, or at least for those musicians that read sheet music. Now, Encoda is an app that contains a massive digital library of sheet music sourced directly from 100 leading publishers. And Encoda has all the tools you'd expect to make playlists, markup scores and play offline. And it can be used on your tablet, your mobile and your desktop. So you can study and play your favourite works on one app for just £9.99 a month. Now you've heard this before I'm sure, but Encoda was designed to make a musician's life easier and more affordable. So much time, money, effort can be saved by consolidating all of one's musical practice and study in one place. Now everyone's taste is different and every favourite piece of yours can be assigned a unique memory or a feeling. You can keep all those pieces and visit those memories and feelings wherever you wish on Encoder. Simplify all of your study, your practice and your performing into one app and explore a whole universe of music. Encoder, made by musicians for musicians. Try Encoder for free on your app store today. That's N-K-O-D-A. And so to Bryce, who has delivered a wonderfully eclectic score to Two Popes director Fernando Mireles, as well as orchestral and Latin American-infused guitar arrangement. He even dabbles in jazz, as demonstrated by this cue, Cathedral. Bryce, this is an absolute treat to have you on Soundtrack, and thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much. It's so nice. Trying to think the last time I saw you was probably for this wonderful evening you did for I'm Easy to Find with Mike at the yeah, Mike yeah, Mills with director. Mike Mills at the at the uh, Royal Festival. Festival. Yeah, yeah, which um which was this brilliant coming together of of your band and visuals, Two Popes as your new project as composer. And it's extraordinary. What a brilliant a what a brilliant film, but B, what a, a beautiful score, but that has so many jobs to do. Where did it project present itself to you, and how did it present itself to you? Yeah, it was a, it was kind of one of these um, lucky, beautiful moments in life where a kind of perfect project uh, descends <laughs> from heaven and actually um, how apt. yeah how apt <laughs> yeah very very holy project. Um, there's a, an amazing um, London-based producer named Tracy Seward who had worked with Fernando before and she's um the main producer on the on the film along with Jonathan Eric and Dan Lynn who are in Los Angeles and so 
you know, Tracy reached out um, from Fernando, who had been listening to some of my music, and um, there was a, a piece, an existing piece of music in this, in the yes, you know, kind of temp in the film as yeah. they were they were still shooting, um, and asked if I would come to Rome to meet them, and so I I flew down there, and the, the incredible thing is I was able to go on set with this. You know, I've, I've wow. scored a, a few films now, but I've never had the opportunity to actually be there while they're making the movie and meet the actors and a bunch of the crew, and so this was really incredible because I. You know, flew down there first to meet them and talk about the project, and then went back um, as we knew that we were for sure I was going to do it, and was there. Um, that sort of the most important scenes in the movie occur in the this they they rebuilt the Sistine Chapel at the um, well not the entire thing they didn't do the ceiling <laughs> yeah. but that would take <laughs> yeah, a lifetime but, yeah <laughs> but they they rebuilt the footprint of it in the walls and the floor and it's a beautiful beautiful um, space that the incredible set designers made and um, at Cinecitta in, in Rome, which is where Fellini made all his movies. And, wow. Um, so I went there um, for a few days and was able to kind of be in the room as they were filming a bunch of these just beautiful scenes between um, Benedict and Bergoglio, Anthony Hopkins and Jonathan Price. And so that was kind of the start of it, yeah. Because the, the location, I, I think, plays such an important part in this film in terms of the sounds of... Rome and the sounds of their world, you know, the bells, all that kind of thing, and the kind of the, the, the human voice, not just in terms of prayer, but the kind of chanting, that kind of thing as well. You know, when you start the film, you sort of, there's a real, you're almost engulfed by the sounds of their world in a way as well. And so for you to be there, I imagine was a really an important part to make sure that the music and the score you were creating, you know, kind of transcended that world in a way. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Fernando Morales is a really, a very musical director and, and not just the music, but the sound design also. And I yeah. should say that about Fernando Stutz also, who's the editor of the film. And the two of them were really, um, I worked very closely with them. And so there, I did record, there was a whole day actually of percussion recording that I did um, at Abbey Road here in London yeah. with a guy named Paul Clarvis, who's kind of like this legendary <laughs> uh, English percussionist who's played in many, many great movies. But there was other sounds that I recorded, um, for instance, in Berlin at the old East German radio building. I did a lot of, um, once I'd kind of, I'd been in the room, I'd read the script, I'd been, I'd seen, you know, the actors shooting scenes and then saw some of the dailies and sort of early cuts of the film. And then I kind of went away and wrote a bunch of music not to picture, um, which was really healthy. So I was able to kind of develop a lot of material, um, that I felt related to the film before yeah. Fernando heard any of it. And and a bunch of that was, was, you know, percussive music that was inspired by like the bells of Rome and the, um, you know, the kind of, I think that the reason that Fernando asked me to do the picture is cause I, I don't, 
I'm, I'm not a kind of straight up, um, you know, if, 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 if what is needed is a kind of straightforward Hollywood film music, which can yeah. be incredible. That's not necessarily what I do. So he wanted me to try to take risks and try things. And, um, and so it was just a, a really a kind of like basically to dream big. So he would say yeah. like, sure, try that. That's, you know, like Whatever anything. you want to do. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's the dream, surely. The score is brilliant because I think that you would assume that with a film like this there would be an element of, you know, kind of religion kind of embedded in the score and it doesn't feel like that at all. It's such an international sounding score, I think, as well. And it's wonderful because it's quite, I think, forward thinking for the subject matter of the film, which ties in with these characters and what they're fighting with as well. Yeah, I think that Fernando was really... um wanted the film not to feel too heavy. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it, it's written, you have these two elderly gentlemen of the church who are basically having this conversation and, and how do you enliven that? And, yeah. make, you know, it's 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 really a masterclass in acting to begin with. It just sees incredible performances from two of the great living actors who yeah. are both both Welsh, I learned. Um, <laughs> but speak amazing Italian and yeah. Latin. It's yeah. like, whoa! Yeah, it's Spanish. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so... Fernando was really intent on having a lot of humor and yeah. kind of levity in the film, yeah. which the script brings out. And then in, in the music also helps with that. You know, for me, I think specifically, we had talked about creating kind of two distinct sound worlds around each of their characters, which to speak very generally, I think with Benedict, it was, you know, both Anthony Hopkins and the real Benedict um, Ratzinger um, are pianists. And so there was this idea that of their kind of um, background and that for, for Benedict, especially this kind of Wagnerian kind of German orchestral music sound. Yeah. So there is there are some cues in the film that I wrote as these sort of big orchestrated, you know, the moment that he's elected Pope is a kind of big giant orchestral cue that was recorded at Abbey Road with London Contemporary Orchestra. So that was a, something that took a while to kind of dial in and find the right sound for. And then for um, for Bergoglio, it was really um, a much more intimate sound and a much more kind of folkloric sound that does, in the end, kind of centers around the sound of me playing guitar, of playing classical guitar, which is, was actually sort of my first instrument. Yeah, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
Was that easy to, was that a conversation that you had with Fernando with regards to these people having almost like finding the instrument that would be their sound sort of thing or their kind of a part of their character, so to speak? Yeah, at, at first he did talk about the idea of um, of having two, you know, what was it an instrument we associate, almost like a light motif or something, but yeah. he, but without it becoming programmatic. Yeah. So in the end, and, and then because there's this, the film, you know, they're rivals, but then they end up becoming kind of this strange, beautiful friendship. And so the, the worlds kind of merge, actually, you know, where you feel this kind of um, the sound of the movie and not just my score, but also some of the source track. There's beautiful use of some, you know, there's an orchestral arrangement of ABBA. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, I was going to yeah, ask. Yeah. Which and, and then um, of the Beatles, Blackbird, well, a bit of which I arranged myself. Um, oh, how was that? Yeah. Um, it was fun. Yeah. It was, really, it was daunting at first. Was it? I, yeah. I thought, you know, I, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to touch Blackbird. But in the end, I, I did... Um, a bit of you know basically the the Beatles are written into the script yeah. as is Abbey Road, and so it was that 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 we knew that was always going to be part of the score, and um and so there was a bit of at the end of the film you you hear a bit of of Blackbird, but um was that your choice then? Um, no, that was Blackbird was 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 part of I don't know if Blackbird was actually in written to the script or just the Beatles, but um it was in the movie when I got there. Yeah. I love that bit where he's like, do you, you, do you know you know who the Beatles are? Yeah. <laughs> it's like. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yes, it's great. Ciao. Ciao. ¿Qué pasa? Siempre que tiene que decir algo embromado, lo dice en latín, ¿sabes? Andres suyos satus, declaro mi ministerio episcopi Rome, comisum renunciare ita uta diefigesima. Ho sentito bene, no, credo, ho tradotto bene. And then the other bit is that where he, they meet in the toilet and uh, Pope Francis is whistling Dancing Queen by yeah. Abba. <laughs> and he kind of goes, what's that? It's such a, but like you say, like the tone of the way that it's written and the performances is like, it could quite easily be like Walter Matthau and, and Jack Lemmon, you know, in terms of the, this kind of odd couple thing that he's really found this, you know, these extraordinary actors, but there's such fragility and honesty and humour in their performances as well. And these moments that really surprise you, be it the ABBA um, yeah, dancing and I think queen the thing as well. humanity in yeah. them... Um, is brought out, and I think also I guess the 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 film was written as a play originally, okay. and so and so 
thinking about how do you make this cinematic and I think music plays into that um, and also just the there's this people I get asked these questions about this because having you know I'm not religious I'm not Catholic I grew up in a kind of mixed my father's Jewish my mother's Christian and yeah. we grew up in a very we had Hanukkah and, and Christmas every year yeah. you know so a movie about the two popes is you know there's I have other friends who are grew up in Catholic <laughs> homes and um, but I think that the music helps kind of just the vastness of this this global institution that means yeah. so much to so many people and is so problematic for so many people. And I think the music itself um, helps bring that, you know, kind of translate. There's music from, you know, in, in the source uh, of in the soundtrack, there's music from Africa. There's a lot of South American music. Um, you know, my music references the kind of South American guitar style, but mm -hmm. also has this kind of big orchestral sounds. And I think, you know, having ABBA and Beatles and kind of mainstream popular music as part of this sort of sound world that you wouldn't associate with the Vatican. Yeah. But as a backdrop, the kind of the humanity and the sort of just the epic um, importance of these things that, that is happening on a personal level with these two characters speaking to each other, but obviously it's very consequential what happens. Yeah. What is that plant? It's oregano. Your gardener gave it to me. You're very popular. I just try to be myself. Whenever I try to be myself, people don't seem to like me very much. Confidential church documents were allegedly leaked to the press. Alleging corruption and misconduct among the clergy. I hope this business is not too distressing. Does a shepherd run away with the wolves up here? We are moving in directions I can no longer condone. I've struggled to do what must be done, but I've lost. Hopes can't resign. If you do this, you will damage the papacy forever. I can no longer sit on the chair of St. Peter. You are mistaken. You are friends. I cannot play this role anymore. There's a saying, God always corrects one pop by presenting the world with another pop. I should quite like to see my correction. Cuando tenga la tierra, Reform needs a politician. The most important qualification for any leader is not wanting to be leader. It's not me who needs to be satisfied. It's 1.2 billion believers. You're the right person. Church needs to change and you could be that change. It could never be me. Nothing is static in nature, not even God. Where should we find him if he's always moving? On the journey? Oh, perhaps we'll find God over there on the journey. I'll introduce you to him. You must remember that you are not God. You're only human. I love all the the kind of the way that he's used real footage as well of of kind of because again similarly to you you know I, I'm I'm not religious at all I have friends of different religion uh, and kind of can see through them kind of sometimes the structural nature of that in a way and so to see and watch this film from the outside kind of looking and I remember the kind of news reports and stuff and that it's almost like some kind of scene from a film you know the black smoke coming out the chimney all that kind of stuff as well and how many people are in that square waiting and the news reporters and how emotional they get about this kind of thing it's extraordinary and I think it's such a clever way of just sort of almost shooting you into the severity of that situation and those kind of people who are 
you know, very religious. It's, it's such a clever way, but then instantly brings you out and onto a human level of these are just people who are in this extraordinary environment. And the, like you say, the, a little mention of the Beatles or Abba whistling whilst he's washing his hands in the toilet yeah. is such a clever way of doing it. And I was thinking about that. Like I went a few years ago, I went um, to visit the Vatican for the first time before I knew about this project. And, <laughs> yeah. and just being in the Sistine Chapel and visiting and all the other, I mean, if you haven't been there, um, I mean, I feel like in Rome, I'd always avoided it because there's so many other incredible things to see. And then it just, you know, getting in feels sort of insurmountable. But I went and it's so you know, so much of the great art of the world was made in, in some way or another under the auspice of the church. I mean, there's so much, so much great, um, you know, if you think about classical music, just all the, whether it be Mozart's Requiem or Bach's St. Matthew's Passion or whatever it is, there's just so many incredible works of art that were made in this, you know, either in, with the idea of God or in the actual church or, you know, yeah. whatever it is. And so, you know, nowadays where religion for many people has maybe receded, uh, although I think there's certainly huge billions of people still who <laughs> yeah. who are very uh, devout followers. But I think music in a way kind of for people remains this, you know, a, a place of spirituality. And yeah. I think that um, whether it be the Beatles or whether or, or music written for a Christian mass or, um, you know, a solo guitar piece or something, there is a kind of spiritual quality in that. And so that in a way that's, you know, again, part of the, the use of music in the film is to kind of bring out, um, you know, because what's happening is these sort of intense theological debates about these ideas, but that sometimes the music kind of can, can, can bring some of the med meditative spirituality yeah. into that. What do you love about composing for film? I love the the collaboration of it. Actually, I have in, until recently I've had sort of a, a double life, um, which has been playing in a in a collaborative rock band, yeah. which is how we first met, um, yeah. and then writing a lot of. Um, you know, I grew up playing classical music, and I've had this kind of other life writing music for orchestras and string quartets, yeah. and I have a kind of deep history with that as well, which is a very solitary existence and very kind of you know, deep in your ideas. And I think, and so, so actually working on a film is, is, is a very good marriage of those two things. Yeah. Um, where I, what I love is getting to work with um, a big team of people and there's a, a brilliant people really. I think film, um, especially good movies uh, like this, which I'm very grateful that it got made. I had a similar experience working on The Revenant um, yeah. with Alejandro Enrico. And in that case, it was even, you know, 
bigger than this where I was I was working with two other composers, Ryuji Sakamoto and Navonoto, um, were the two other composers on that project. So it was just this incredible exchange of ideas. And I think you have to to be humble and to you know leave your ego intact, but maybe like sort of at the at the edge of the room or out, <laughs> yeah. out, you know so because you know obviously you're you're working with. Um, in service of what the director um, is imagining, and so um, knowing when to challenge an idea or when to 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 pivot to kind of you know do what's needed is always a, a question. But I think for me, it's about collaboration, and that's that's um, having been in a collaborative rock band for 20 years where you get beat up a lot. It's actually a very healthy thing because you you understand that you know sometimes. You know, sometimes what you think is a great idea is not, you know, it might be a great idea, but it also, it's, it's good to listen to the other voices in the room. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think a lot of people will assume that being a composer for film is quite a solitary existence. But I think that, and from hearing you talk as well, and particularly about working on To Pope, that idea that it sounds like you created so much music in different parts of the world you know be that in Berlin or be that in London and was that was that because you were on the road with with the national or was that just because um no I think that I in this case I, I went places yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I went places where I um I recorded a bunch of music in Chicago as well actually with yeah. uh, chamber music with this incredible there's I wrote for the Bendonion actually wow so I use that instrument but in outside of Argentinian music so there's there's some some part of the score and this is amazing musician named Julian Labro who's like the kind of the master um, you know one of the great Bendonion players who came and worked with me there Most of the score was recorded here in London at Abbey Road, but I think, uh, although all my guitar parts I did in, in my studio in Paris, basically. Wow. Um, yeah, it was a really fun um, project to be able to travel with and kind of go to the musicians that I could trust. And it's a mixture of classical musicians and then just people who who kind of make sounds that I love. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> great. Yeah. That's such, I mean, it's... It- just that idea of going, yeah, I think I want to use that instrument, so I'm going to go there because I know someone who plays that instrument brilliantly. That's a, what a lovely opportunity, going back to the idea of collaboration that you were talking about earlier. Can we talk a little bit about The Revenant and, yeah. and, and, and what, what was asked of you and how you came to be involved in that? Because that was such a powerful score and the idea that there was three people you know, working on that as well, but it being seamless. Yeah, um... I presented some music um, with the Los Angeles Philharmonic in 2014, I think. And um, Alejandro Enrique is a close friend of Gustavo Dudamel, the conductor of the LA Phil, where they do tons of amazing new commissions for orchestra. And so he heard, unbeknownst to me, he heard a piece of mine that night and then started investigating. And then he put he was in the middle of making The Revenant at that time. And he put, there's a piece called Lacrimae that was... Um, 
that I recorded with Deutsche Grammophon several years ago with the Copenhagen Philharmonic. Yeah. And that it's a string orchestra piece that basically there's the moment where the avalanche happens towards the end of the like the last third of the film where um, DiCaprio and Tom Hardy are like finally in their, you know, about <laughs> yeah. to... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not to beat the crap out of each other. Yeah. Um, and so that basically the last third of the movie used a lot of that piece. Um, Ryuichi Sakamoto was the main composer in the film, and obviously he's one of the great masters of film music and uh, just an artist that I love. And um, and he'd been through um, he had been sick yeah. um, over that those couple of years that they were making the film, and and the film ended, ended up being so vast, right? I mean, you know, the the Pope I think is under two hours, where the Revenant is over three. It was a giant movie, and. Um, and so uh, I got a call that summer from Alejandro basically saying, look, um, you know, I'm using some of your music in the film. How would you feel about, you know, I really feel like it's a, it's part of the sound world. And, and yeah. again, I think Alejandro and Fernando have a similar, extremely music-based, uh, very surprising, completely untraditional approach to score. Yeah. Um, I mean, Alejandro is really one of the great masters of, obviously, of filmmaking and, and has an extremely... Um, um, you know, for him, sound is everything. He was actually a radio DJ. I don't know if you know that. But was he? Yeah. He was Alejandro. In fact, you guys should do a whole podcast just on that topic. And I'm, oh I'm saying this to you now because it's such a good idea. Well, if you can hook us up, I say I'm I can do that right now. Right? I will call him. <laughs> well, um, what, like, a, like he, of... when he was, now I'm going to say this right now and then he'll correct me. But um, basically he and like his two best friends when they were in their like teenage years in Mexico City, um, yeah, he was probably 19, I think. I think his girlfriend at the time owned a radio station and he went and convinced him to let, you know, let, let Alejandro 
just take an hour and do it. And it and it was so successful that he then basically all through the eighties he was they became like um you know like like Mexico's South America's like biggest radio DJs. It was this huge and wow. every every major like, you know, the Stones or whoever they would have on the show. And um and so that was totally his you know, he was a radio. I had no idea. Ra- yeah, and then he switched to filmmaking, I believe, in the early '90s, I think, or late '80s. Yeah, but he um he has a total like so a music, a very music based yeah. background. He has amazing stories about it, and actually his um his two his two friends. Well, there were four, actually four of them. One of them is Martin Hernandez, is his sound mm-hmm. designer. Um, who I worked really closely with, along with Alejandro, who's he's just, uh, you know, it's not just music, it's the sound design of the film is everything for yeah. them. Um, and then there's two other friends who have a radio station there called, um, it's, I think it's called Aire Libre, that they just, like, it's just a few years old now that they started. Another, yeah, another friend named Alejandro, actually, oh and they, God, they have this great amazing. radio station. Yeah, What um, a great story. I had no idea. Yeah, it, so you definitely have to do a show. <laughs> yeah. I will literally like text him right now. <laughs> okay, yeah. That would be amazing. Did you get to? Uh, have you seen the? Um, I love the the Ryuichi Sakamoto documentary actually, which was I think filmed around that time as well. We, I haven't he, seen that. No. It's extraordinary wow. actually because he's very open and honest about his illness, hmm. um, and kind of you know fighting it, and actually how music was very much therapy for him, wow. kind of getting through it, and how the Revenant came to him where he didn't think he could do anything on it mm-hmm. but it how it almost kind of I think forcing himself to do it almost kind of really helped him through that oh, whole beautiful. period it's extraordinary yeah. yeah so I was brought in for for very he had already written the, you know the main themes and a, a lot of score but it was there was certain like sort of key scenes that needed that basically Alejandro imagined my music would kind of weave back in throughout yeah. the film um, and then after I was brought in actually um, Carsten Nikolai who whose artist name is Alvinota who works a lot with Ryuchi he came in so a lot of the electronic textures that were added as part of the score
And not only that, there's then other, you know, elements of of, of source music that are that are blended in as well. Yeah. So it's a very kind of it's almost as a kind of montage feeling about it. But it was an incredible experience for me, um, you know, getting to meet and work with Karsten and Ruchi, and then you know becoming very close with Alejandro, and um, and also to work on a, a, a film. It was actually a, a, you know for both Karsten and I at the time it was our first. I had done some you know a couple small movies, but it was the first yeah. project like that, wow. um, and it was a real kind of masterclass and just, just even getting to work with, you know, the, the various departments, you know, there was, um, you know, someone like Randy Tom mixed the, the film yeah. and you know, just getting to meet these people was really incredible. Is it very different from writing for your band, you know, in terms of that experience of of sitting down and creating? Yeah, I think that it's, um, I mean, actually developing music is developing music. And I'm always the same person wherever I go with that, you know, whether it be writing um, like a song for the band or developing. um, And I think sometimes what's in common with writing a pop song and writing a film cue is that you have to kind of say what you need to say fairly quickly. You know, yeah. you know, a two minute film cue is quite long actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, often I remember I wrote the, the music that plays during the bear attack and it's, you know, 17 horrific seconds, but it was, I had to do, you know, 20 versions of it. Wow. And it would, I would I get these this. calls from Alejandro would be like, you know, I think we need, we need one note. No, we need two notes. <laughs> Maybe what? What do you think? Two notes. Yeah, <laughs> it was just. But it was so beautiful. What also. do you do with two notes to make a scene like that? That's what, well. I mean, yeah. the, the scene was already there. I was. It was. A, but it was just finding the right. But to accompany it. Yeah, you know, part it, of the, to be part I think of it. The, and... the thing I can say about that experience, and also, you know, for sure, also working with Fernando Morales, is that the the beauty is in the details, and I think yeah. that you know that's the thing that 
people who like our band, um, the National might say, is that because it we obviously don't make the the biggest pop songs in the world, but what what is there is like we spend a lot of time really digging deep and kind of drilling the well deep down to find what's what's you know hidden in the earth beneath the song and kind of bringing and finding a kind of a journey for it to take and really thinking about texture and and all of that in in filmmaking is incredibly important, you know, yeah. and, and it's the, the those micro details that really make the whole stronger and, and more beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you do definitely do that as a band in terms of kind of you get to the soul of emotion with people, I think, in the way that you you write. I think it's, yeah, I love your band. Oh, thank yeah. you. What makes you say yes to a project to to compose particularly? What, what do you look for? What are you responding to, do you think? I mean, I think that, well, in the case of The Revenant or The Two Popes, they're kind of dream situations where you just I think anyone would be like oh, of course you know <laughs> yeah. um, no I don't like I don't like Anthony Hopkins <laughs> acting <laughs> it's not good yeah no um, so but I think you know there, there's what I know that I can do well and so when I get asked about a project where um, I scored a, a, a Netflix documentary um, called The um, Death and Life of Martha, Marsha P. Johnson a mm-hmm. few years ago. And it was, that's an example of a small movie where it was a small budget. So there was, I had to kind of think of how, how could I achieve something that I would be proud of. But I was so passionate about the subject matter mm-hmm. of that. It was a guy named David France directed it. And, um, um, you know, Marsha P. Johnson is, is one of the great heroes uh, in New York and this incredible, incredible activist and so I, I just felt really um, inspired to do it and and I had kind of was asked about it and I thought about it for a while and I thought I have an idea for this which is which is I wrote like an hour string quartet basically and recorded it in a day um, with these incredible players in New York and then was able to kind of use that as the basis for the score. partly sort of having the idea mm-hmm. that you know how can I achieve this without a huge budget or or you know or it's in a, and I don't hear it's not going to be me, me playing instruments um yeah so um but I like a challenge I like doing things where it's it's surprising you know yeah um I am very I've often most of the music that I write is inspired by you know visual art or maybe by um, by literature or something. So, so film is kind of perfect because it, it comes immediately with, with sort of windows that you can, or doors that you can pass through. Yeah. So in this case, it was like, obviously I wanted to kind of inhabit Argentinian folk music and learn about it. And so I, there's, there's, I did record some, some, um, 
made some arrangements of, of Argentinian songs that I recorded as part of this just to have the experience of doing it. There's one of them is in the in in the movie at the end. Yeah. Plays in the end credits. It's a piece called Siete de Abril that's on the actually on the soundtrack as well. the lovely thing as well is that you know listening to the soundtrack as its own thing you know as a piece of art it's beautiful to listen to and that's the wonderful thing in terms of soundtracks now in terms of they are their own thing outside the film which is is a great thing for music fans to be able to you know just have it with you wherever and and as a piece of music from start to finish it's a gorgeous journey you go on just with the music and I listen to the album the soundtrack album before I'd seen the film, so that was quite an interesting. Oh, neat! Yeah, yeah it was quite an interesting. Yeah, I sent as well. it to Fernando, and actually, he he wrote this beautiful letter back, being like, "Oh, it's so amazing to hear the music just as music." Because I mean, yeah, I'm not looking for a scene for it, <laughs> yeah. or I'm thinking about cutting off the last 15 seconds, or <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and I think that that, and I like actually thinking about the, um, the way that the, I like the the way the 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 movie the narrative the dialogue the cinematography has has created this music but then to hear in and sort of you can feel its pattern and its mm-hmm. energy in it but then the music on its own is its own composition and, yeah. and and with this project I really um like the guitar pieces for instance I really you know I I wrote them but I didn't you know knowing that it would probably be fitting into 40 seconds but then I would perform them and properly try to let it breathe and um you know like again inspired by having seen these actors working and the way they yeah. relate to the material and trying to get a performance that had energy and that you know which you can't really do in 40 seconds you need three minutes um and so i would i would create versions so on the soundtrack it's what's nice is we hear those fuller versions of certain pieces that are smaller in the movie it's great it has two lives yeah it's great <laughs> Thank you. 
Can you remember the films for you as as a kid growing up that the music within film, be it um, you know existing needle drops or score, really resonate with you? I mean, I think that the movies that that dominated our childhood were the Star Wars movies, you know, and those incredible scores, mm-hmm. um, which still are so timeless, you know. So it's amazing um, how that that little fanfare that of the opening of Star Wars still now after having watched that film for, you know, 40 odd years still literally makes the hairs on my yeah. arms and neck stand on end. Yeah, no, so I, have, I haven't done anything, um, you know, that that would be a, a next phase for me. Is, is that the dream? To, yeah, to write, yeah? To write thematic uh, film music of that kind would be a, a, a real challenge. That's what I thought. <laughs> weird is amazing. that? My watch agrees with you. That's so weird. That's amazing. And do you know that the Apple, is that the Apple watch? Yeah. That, that figures in, so Anthony Hopkins wears it in the movie. And so that's that's a really cool. It's perfect for the this, yeah. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah, I agree for, too. I'll tell Fernando to listen to this because he'll find that amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So bonkers. Um, listen, thank you so much for, for sparing the time. I know you're in the middle of tour and stuff as well. Um, Merry Christmas thank you, when it comes and thank congratulations. You. And I, I really look forward to, to what's next in your world of composing. Thanks so much, Bryce. Thank Cheers. You. Thanks. From the score to Two Popes, that's Bergoglio's Awakening by Bryce Desner, rounding off the first part of our bumper Christmas special with the National Star. My huge thanks to Bryce for taking the time to talk to us. Two Popes is available to watch on Netflix now and is as brilliant as the music he's composed for it. Now, before we get to Avengers writers Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, which I have to warn you now, There are a few spoilers in our chat, so if you are one of the few who hasn't watched Avengers Endgame yet, just a word of warning. 
Before all that, I want to tell you about delayed gratification, which is perfect for those of you who find the news stressful and overwhelming. I know I do. Delayed Gratification is the first slow journalism magazine which helps readers make sense of an increasingly crazy world. Now, since 2011, it's returned to major news stories after the dust has settled to tell the whole story with context and perspective instead of knee-jerk reactions and sensationalism. Delayed Gratification was launched as an antidote to today's ultra-fast news cycle where it's seemingly more important to be first than be accurate. In a world where fake news and propaganda is on the rise, it's balanced, independent, reflective and honest. Delayed gratification is proud to be last to break the news. It's a quarterly publication filled with insightful long-form journalism, beautiful photo features and stunning infographics. Among the latest highlights are a fold-out Beatles infographic, Fran Leibovitch remembering her friend Toni Morrison and, appropriately enough, The Movie Matrix, which rates every film by commercial versus critical success. A subscription to Delayed Gratification makes a great present and a year's worth of slow journalism starts at just £36. What's more, we have a very special offer for listeners to our wee podcast. Subscribe now and they'll throw in a copy of the current issue for free. Simply go to slow-journalism.com Click on the subscribe button and enter the code SOUNDTRACKING in the promo code box. That's slow-journalism.com using the promo code SOUNDTRACKING. Now, one of the films that was both a commercial and critical success in 2019 was Avengers Endgame. And having spoken to directors Joe and Anthony Russo and composer Alan Silvestri about it earlier in the year, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome writers Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. Now, if I'm honest, we don't talk that much about the music, but I wanted to share the interview with you anyway, as they are such good value. We will, of course, slip as much music in as we can too, including Alan Silvestri's main title cue for Captain America, the first Avenger, which was their first script for Marvel Studios. And Christopher, Stephen, thank you so much for, for sparing us the time to come and chat on Soundtrack. And it's, it's great, a pleasure. To, great to have you here. And like, I, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but it is lovely because we've had the Russo Brothers on twice. We've had Mr. Silvestri on as well, okay. uh, talking about the music. And I feel like we're going to the core now. <laughs> we're going core, to the origin. Yes, I don't know. The origin yes. of it. <laughs> the, um, patient we, zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know where it starts, to be honest, because, I mean, you guys have had this incredible journey. Um, um, 
prior to this, you know, MCU and as a, sure. as a writing partnership. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if we, uh, if you tell me how how you guys started writing together? Oh, sure. If you want that story? Sure. <laughs> uh, we met in grad school. Amazing. Uh, so this would have been 1994. 1994. Yeah, it's just Earth years. It's just a few. Yes, exactly. Uh, and we were uh, trying to be novelists and short story writers, and you know, figuring out our way. We we're young men, and. Uh, uh, sometime through the program, we sort of realized, oh, it's very difficult to make your way as a novelist. And, and it seems like that's almost, you'll have to get another job when you get out of this program in order to feed your novel writing. And we really wanted to make writing our full-time job. That was the goal of trying to become a writer. And, and circumstances led us to trying to write screenplays. And it was such a new phenomenon to the both of us that it was much easier sort of to cling to each other and say, oh, why don't we do this together? Uh, and and that, that's what led us to move to Los Angeles when we got out. Yeah. And then what what was that step into that world and your writing being recognized by? Uh, we, well, we we got jobs and wrote in the morning before these jobs <laughs> and, and, and eventually got to a point where we were not ashamed of a thing we had written. Uh, the first thing we ever wrote together, we were very ashamed of. No one's ever, so no one's ever read it. Life is based on shame. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we should embrace the shame, though. That's how I feel about shame. Just I feel this. There are entire careers based on it, but you learn from it. <laughs> Fair enough. I learn from his. He learns from me. That's true. Um, you find his on the internet. I'll send you a link. <laughs> but uh, not yet. Not yet. Um, his boss at the time mm. was a nice fellow who showed uh, our script to a couple of agents, one of whom kind of took us on. Mm. And we've scrabbled our way yes. since then. A 25-year overnight sensation. Hardly mm-hmm. scrabbled. I mean, you had huge success with that kind of – with the life and death of Peter Sellers, mm. you know, way back movie. before yeah. the MCU world. Mm. Um, what was it about – him and that story that connected with you guys because you know we're in london we are we are and uh we're in his stomping grounds (laughs) i mean he was such a genius and such a bastard and the that combination like iron man was uh exactly (laughs) was very compelling and you know him being such a chameleon on screen gave you so many cinematic possibilities yeah. and his ability to shapeshift right yeah. in front of you. It's a very showy – it was a showy piece of writing and therefore uh, became a showy piece of, of acting. You know, and we, I think HBO knew they could get somebody pretty good because it offered a lot of opportunities to stretch. Jeffrey Arsh was, was great in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean the cast in that just yeah. across the board. Yeah, it was a little ridiculous. Stanley Tucci. Charlize Theron. Charlize Theron in maybe her third role or something. Yeah, Tucci as Kubrick I think might be my favorite though. Yeah, totally. Incredible. Right, let's get into the world of Marvel and – I kind of feel like I want to start now rather than going back to, to the start to, sure. to Captain America because have you had time to kind of take stock to the reaction of this phenomenal crescendo to this world that you've been involved in for, for a, a long time? A long time. And you usually when you're involved in something, it ends because it sort of ran out of steam. Yes. You know, it <laughs> is ratings rare. weren't good enough. <laughs> it's rare that it, it does get to a, a crescendo, as you said, where, you know, you get to tie it all together mm-hmm. and, and give this closure. And, and the audience has responded that way. You know, they have, I think they are grateful to have been 
to have had this thing in which they have invested so mm-hmm. much time brought to a close in a in a in a exciting and entertaining but also a respectful yeah. manner. Do you think to be able to do what you did with Infinity War and Endgame, you had to be along part of the journey o- along the way? So you you know with Thor and with Captain America. Oh, mm. that only we could bring this to the screen. I don't. I mean, it'd be pretty to think so. Only <laughs> we. <laughs> but did you think you need to have you've you know you've been it involved helped. in that world oh, to yeah. kind of see oh, and sure. know the kind of yeah. uh, the passion and the emotion behind it, particularly for from Kevin from Kevin Feige and his his you know his kind of drive to this sure. world. I mean, it certainly helped. And yeah. it's, it it helped to be able, for instance, uh, Thor the Dark World is not most people's favorite Marvel movie. You know, I, th- I think it has some strong points. But we were able to draw a lot from Thor the Dark World for that, you know, uh, other people may have found a way around it. We were like, yeah. no, let's dig right into the one we did. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think the only way you could have done this is by keeping the same team together in many yeah. ways, yeah. just on a logistic level, but also, yeah, emotionally, that we're all real super invested. But it's mm. basically the same team that did, and I'm talking from uh, visual effects to cinematography to editing, like all uh, is, is uh, Winter Soldier, Civil War, and the last two Avengers. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Right, where'd you start with this? This with kind this? of two part ending of this world. How did you start? Where did you start? Yeah. Um, well, did you write it as one? Yeah. Well, we wrote half it we, in the middle. No, no, no. We we wrote it as two movies, sim- uh, one after the other, <laughs> yeah. conceived yeah. all together. Yeah. But always as two very different movies. So we started. Uh, got the finally said yes just before we started shooting Civil War. So that's another thing oh, to think about. Wow. Well, think about that. So that Kevin says, "I want the people who did one movie for me so far, Winter Soldier, and they've cracked and are about to shoot." You know, a s- civil war, but we don't know if that's going to be any good or not, right? Kevin, but he has faith in Joe and Anthony and to some extent us that this is the team to do it. And so we say yes. And then as we're shooting civil war, Chris and I are sort of important for the first couple hours of the day as changes might need to come up. But then the rest of the day, we can hide ourselves in, in our office and read. And that's what we did throughout that entire shoot and just coming up with all the many, many different possible ideas that you, you could embrace if you're, if you're doing a two-part, super big, expensive wow. Infinity War mm-hmm. and untitled other movie, so it was yeah, it was bury yourself in in yeah. in facts and see where you come out the other end. You must have then had kind of been privy to the scripts for the other films then along mm-hmm. the way because when everything exists. Yeah, when as many as we could get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when they existed, but you know, in terms of because mm-hmm. how everything tied up and linked, and not just storylines, but emotions and relationships mm. between characters and stuff. Yeah, and and did occasionally have to sort of recalibrate as things changed. Uh, Thor Ragnarok was a big tonal shift yeah. for Thor, and as they settled on what they were <laughs> doing, right. they came and told us, yeah. and we're like, okay, that's what is interesting. That? Yeah. So and good. Yeah, our first draft did not have a Thor that had been through Ragnarok. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah, we, we so just you... knew that there would be a movie. Yeah. Yeah. So much so much of the time we have to start without anything. Uh in this case the we had the extra added sort of weirdness where two movies were going to come in between our two movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the few, one of the few times where we had to make requests of other people. We usually don't have to do that. It's every filmmaker gets to do exactly what they mm-hmm. want. And by and large, that was true, even in this case, although we did ask Peyton Reed, would you please 
Leave him alive in the quantum realm. <laughs> <That'd be very laughs> for us. One request. One request. Yeah. You can do whatever you want except for the last minute of your movie. Um, wow. Yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a juggling act, but it always works out for the better. Like when someone throws you a curveball, it gives you more options. Yeah. I don't think Thor would be as affecting emotionally in his sadness in these two movies if he hadn't gotten so silly in in Ragnarok yeah. because there's a there's almost a manic sense to it and there's a lot of loss in Ragnarok as well so that you know you're laughing and then he starts crying like in the pod where he's saying something stupid and he chokes up and you're like oh god he's nearly an unstable person yeah. at this point yeah. he's a good actor good yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is it's kind of finding the tone isn't it and yeah. and that's the great thing is the tone can shift for a character oh yeah which is is brilliant i saw on a, a personal note on the the scene where he, where he's whether he's in his his abode on on his island mm. um a little bit overweight and uh, there's a there's a bottle of iron brew yes behind him yes. was that written in the script no because being scottish and knowing the benefits of a bottle of iron brew after too much of the good stuff we, i appreciate that wholeheartedly. imagined it well we shot it in <laughs> we didn't although we didn't shoot that interior in scotland no. but the exteriors were in scotland That's right. um That's right. in a beautiful little town called uh, in his no i, I can't remember I don't know. No, it's a very small town on the you, coast, not too far you, from Edinburgh. Yeah, you drive oh, okay. an hour from Edinburgh. Uh, north from Edinburgh. No, like I want to say south. Do south? Because I'm, I'm at my village is an hour north uh, from it's, Edinburgh. It's, Tiny fishing. Go to the water and go down. Yeah. So down. Yeah, okay. south. We'll find it. Some, yeah, we'll find it. Where I've got it. Yeah. So on that's Newtonsburg, yeah. <laughs> Norway. Yeah, great. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I recognised it, you know, yeah, the homeland. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, totally. But I love that. But when I, when I knew I was coming to speak to you, I was like, I can ask them one about the Iron Brew. One of guys likes beer. No, it's probably uh, either Charlie Wood or one of the Booster Brothers who likes that beer. <laughs> um, music. Does music come hmm. into when you're writing? And then when you think about the soundscapes to all these mm-hmm. films and the different composers that have been used, I mean, mm-hmm. Alan's been through a lot of them, but Brian Tyler as well has worked on a number of the films Henry and Jackman. Henry Jackman as well. Mm-hmm. Is that something, you know, do you do you surround yourself with any of that or any type of music when you're writing? Some, I, you know, I often, I love music and I love the idea of writing to music, yeah. but I almost always have to turn it off yeah. because I can't hear the words. <laughs> Over the, you know, yeah. this finished product that's going in here. I have often used it, um, particularly on sets. Say, because we, uh, uh, it used to be that Chris and I, no one was expecting our script, you know, in the early days, right? So we could take any kind of time we wanted and, and whatnot. And now, lately, there's always been this bludgeoning deadline with everything we do. And sometimes that means we're writing on set or in chaotic circumstances. And a lot of times I will put earbuds in and crank up. Almost always, it's a sound a, a film score, and lately, it's if it's an adventurous movie, I'll use Alan Silvestri score. score. Mm-hmm. And I won't, you know, I won't necessarily match scene to uh, to what I'm listening to, but sometimes I will. If it's yeah. actiony, I'll pick. But it does it ever deceive you? Like if it's like big, grandiose music, that what you're writing is great? No, I mean, I always <laughs> think what I'm writing is not great. No. But li- listen to the music; it must be but good. I, but I huge. But I, it's again, it's not. I, you know, I am not a director. Um, uh, but I recognize have recognized the value of score. 
uh, over the course of these 10 years working on these Marvel movies. And, and, and Chris and I have become more integral to these things as, as we've come on. We're in the room a lot more with every yeah. <laughs> subsequent movie. So it's great to watch things not work. And then Alan comes in and then things work. You know, that happens God, yeah. all the time. Mm. And that's also the same with performances. Oh, yeah. In terms mm-hmm. of these actors and how they've embodied these characters, how the characters have been on journeys themselves with their own stories, but the combination of working, you know, weaving with each other's stories as well. Mm-hmm. And and if performances have been something that have informed storylines in a way as well. Mm. Well, we, we you know, know the storyline is often fairly set in stone before the performances begin, but there's always something new being brought. Yeah. For some, I'm thinking in the group therapy scene that uh, Steve Rogers is leading. And we'd written a kind of okay. relatively uplifting pep talk for him. And I think, you know, we'd written like Cap's not sure whether he believes himself or not. And Chris added, he, uh, something, he, he repeats, he goes like, we gotta do it. Gotta do it. Like, and it is, <laughs> he's, you know, a hundred percent like, Boy, he doesn't believe what he's saying. Like, <laughs> that was great. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we're often charmed by, uh, by performance. Like, you know, yeah. Hemsworth in the pod. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. You know, where he starts to tear up and he's talking to a, not even a real raccoon. He's not even there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, Downey is another animal altogether. Yeah. Right? So it's, it's, that's the, the challenge of trying to work with a guy who, is is firing million miles a minute and, mm-hmm. and value spontaneity. Yeah. Um, uh, so over the course of the movies, we've we've learned how to work with actors uh, who need to be worked with differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's weird. Some of them you can tell a performance is great when you're watching it. Mm-hmm. Other ones you can only see it once you're watching it on a it's cut in the playback or when it's cut together. Why do you think that is? I I honestly don't know. It's partly because certain characters are are more effusive. Mm-hmm. Like if Robert's doing a big flashy kind of riff, you go, you can, you know, right away, like, ah, oh, it's going to play like gangbusters. <laughs> yeah. Scarlet's character is so bitten back and terse, like live, it can sometimes seem like, well, she's just saying lines. And when you get in, you know, when it's blown up and you see what her face is doing and everything, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, yeah, that's a whole different thing yeah. that she's doing there. Yeah. So there's so much that comes to it once they that get a hold of it. That peanut butter sandwich scene. Is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's silly to reduce it to that, but it's one of the best things I've seen her do. <laughs> she's wonderful in it. Are you on set the whole for these last two movies? I imagine mm. you were there the whole time We've because you must have to react. For all of them. Yeah. 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 
we're either I mean, sometimes the rare occasion we're just there to watch it because it's like she can't just look at all these movie stars. <laughs> um, yeah, the most expensive. I was watching a really great little clip from you guys. At, I think it was with Comic Con with Kevin Smith. Oh yeah, uh, and um, and he was kind of talking about the. I mean, I will put a spoiler thing at the beginning of this, sure. just in case there's a person yeah, in the world I mean, who hasn't seen the film yet. True. That one person. Yeah. But, um, you know, the kind of the funeral scene yeah. and it being like the most expensive extras shot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ever. Like, no lines. Just yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody says anything. Just standing. <laughs> they don't need to, though. The emotion is so charged. What galls me, though, is that I, I still meet people who are like, well, that was all edited together, right? You didn't have them all. No, the whole point is that they were all there at the same time. <laughs> But I love how you kind of told them they were all coming from weddings. Yes. Well, yes. As Who much did as you we say whose wedding? I think when they got to wardrobe and found out everyone was wearing black, they were like, "Oh, it's a terrible wedding," <laughs> or it's a Tim Burton movie. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the emo guy amongst us? Come That's on. Right. Um, how did you? How were you able to kind of? keep the lid on that, you know, in terms of the amount of people who are involved in this. Oh, film. well, that's what you call it, wedding, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, no lie. That's, you know, we, uh, it says wedding on every piece of, of paper in case somebody's assistant from that agency or that management company or you know, there's just so many places where it could get sort of dropped along the way. Yeah. I remember back in the day before they did it all electronically, I think Sam Jackson lost six pages of his script and left it around somewhere until people found it. Yeah. And and so they just kind of went into a tizzy and like six pages of some script had gotten out. And now they barely printed that thing. You know, for the last two movies, they but just. It, but you filmed it, and it still was kept a secret. And well, it's an it's an amazing thing. I mean, you guys should work yeah. for the government. <laughs> well, well, our line producer should work for That's the government. True. Well, part of it is the is this will get really sappy, but like, but you know, there are I don't know hundreds and hundreds of people working every day on that set. Let alone all the um, visual effects houses that and all the other people that come on board. Yeah. Um, it's in everyone's best interest to keep it secret. And they really, I got the impression, thought what they were doing was pretty cool. Yeah. You know, yeah. everyone kind of felt like, oh, this could be special if we stick the landing on this. Yeah. So there's not much impetus to be yeah, a jerk like- out there and get on Instagram. And you'd like to keep your job. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. the axe falls very, <laughs> very, very quickly. Yeah. How um, how much did you write that didn't make it in the film? Either uh, film? Tons. Just because that's part of the part of the way we work with Joe and Anthony and with Marvel is is to try everything out, you know, give it a go. There's, there's whole adventure storylines in in the two of these movies that went through drafts, went through set design, went through some set building. Wow. And then got I don't know why it took uh, this collective group of experienced filmmakers that long to go, this is stupid. <laughs> but somebody finally did and went it's dumb. Let's not do it. And you're right. You're but right. Charlie already built that. Um, well, that's the brilliance of Charlie Wood is that not only did he build it, he was able to build it into something else that's right. afterward. That's right. The Vormir Mountain it wasn't always used before. to be something else. <laughs> Which will remain <laughs> Which will remain. Did Chris Evans' head ever get made? You know, the, the, uh, the oh, we cut off his head. head. head uh, yeah, no. I don't think anybody ever actually made a head. Okay. No. We were just going to cut off his head. <laughs> just, you know, he was done shooting. <laughs> if you if you schedule it last, That's you right. can yeah. do these things. Last. Yeah. Yeah. What? How easy was it to come to the end and to find your end? Do well, you want the backwards? end end. Yeah. Well, like, we had that forever. from very early forever. on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from fa- in the fall of 2015. Yeah. 
we had those three by five cards of Stephen Peggy and Tony yeah. Dyes, and they were they never really moved. Wow. And in terms of you know whether that would have been the ending for writers if they hadn't written three Captain America movies and and a Peggy Carter TV show and taken those two all through this, I don't know. But like, boy, it's neat to have had <laughs> the opportunity to take ten years and get those people back to the dance that they missed is is sort of like yeah, you can't ask for better math than that and the math did itself we didn't do it Kiss me once, then kiss me twice, then kiss me once again. It's been a long, long time. Haven't felt like this, my dear, since can't remember when. It's been a long, long time. You'll never know how many dreams I dreamed. Just how empty they all seemed without you So kiss me once, then kiss me twice Kiss me once again It's been a long, long time Do you think about who the film's for when you're writing it? Do you think about... Selfishly, mm. we, we make it for us yeah. i mean we often yeah. say that you know it's it's joe Anth, me and chris if we like something it goes in the script yeah <laughs> yeah and if we don't like it it doesn't um and we just have to hope that enough people like what we like yeah <laughs> and and i think it looks like they it's, do well yeah. it's, it's been accumulating <laughs> I mean, it's and it's it's they have shown us that they really value evolution mm. you know they don't want the same thing again yeah. They want a, a next step beyond. They want that character to go through something else. And when you when you know that you've got the next stage cracked, that mm-hmm. it's this is where that person would go after those experiences and when presented with this, that's when you know, okay, I think we're giving them the right movie. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, one of the reasons the response is so gratifying is that I think they think we gave them the right movie, which is... <laughs> right nice it's been amazing to kind of be on the journey like i've got two boys who are six and 11 mm. and even the six-year-old you know it's kind of um he's he, because he's 11 year old so a brother can watch it he's like i can watch it all now and we are going back to the start to do the whole kind of <laughs> time frame through as well but it's it's amazing to think that you've created and been part of this world that has that appeals to so many generations of film yeah. fans yeah not yeah. many things are able to do that, where everybody gets something out of it. It's weird. I, I, audiences have come on board with every subsequent movie, right? Like mm-hmm. they, uh, certainly there are uh, 21-year-olds who started with Iron Man at age 10 and just inhaled this thing every two, two movies every year. Uh, but I think there's plenty of people of different generations that when that 14-year-old came to them and said, hey, will you take me to the Winter Soldier? They come on board and they say, oh, this is kind of a 
just a kick-ass yeah. espionage movie. I, maybe I can maybe I can watch the next. Yeah, one. No. And if it's working, it's working. Like we there was a went to a screening a few weeks ago, and there was a, a an older woman there who had never seen a Marvel movie before. And she had, I don't know what compelled her to come to this one. Yeah. Uh, and she was just totally into it. And she was like, that was great. You know, <laughs> like, how did you even know what was going on? But like, she was, you know, she was not a Marvel fan. She was not a kid, you know, and she was a happy person. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. I don't. Right. I, I, it, it's, it kind of, it delivers everything you want as a film fan when you want to go to the cinema and have an experience mm, yeah. you know you have you laugh you cry you're right. on an adventure it's just all those things that I remember as a kid yeah. of that kind of event of going to the cinema of just delivering this is what's changed though is that it used to be I mean let's say you're making a sequel in the 1980s right mm. gonna go you know Spiffy Man, right? Right. We're gonna do Spiffy Man too, but you can't make it too different because people went to Spiffy Man, so we're gonna get ten percent different and you know, crank that one out. And audiences are way too smart for that. They've consumed way too much narrative. And so the big gamble that Kevin and the MCU and Marvel has made is that you're gonna have a deeper experience the more you know. You know this. So I God bless that woman who, you know, said mm-hmm. I loved it. Yeah. She didn't have nearly the experience you're Son's gonna have yeah. when he mm-hmm. you know, at Endgame because yeah. she's not invested. She doesn't know that when he whispers "Hail Hydra" in the elevator, it's awesome, <laughs> right? Uh, or that when Cap picks up the hammer, it's ridiculously yeah. awesome because the sound, the audible sound in the cinema when that, yeah. Happened. Oh yeah. my god, it's, it's like it's, crazy. it's like an emotional Mexican wave. It's just like <laughs> what? It's so great, and it that's is. from time spent. And now yeah. that's my point: is that audiences are willing to spend the time. Yeah. And if you honor the time and you you know you land the plane, uh, they'll reward you for it. Who's the easiest Avenger to write? Oh boy. Hmm. <laughs> Groot? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, they're all... I mean, we're very familiar with Cap by now. Yeah. So he's relatively easy to write, although he doesn't say too much, so he has to be yeah, pretty deep. pretty precise yeah, in, right. in what he says. I enjoy writing for Tony, even if 95% of it never gets said, <laughs> because it's, you know, like... It's a riff process on Iron every... Man 3, so I know exactly. Drew <laughs> yeah, is yeah. a really good friend of mine, so I know exactly what you're talking about. It's yeah. like you riff when you're writing Go for him, for Robert riffs when he's doing <laughs> yeah. it. It's like... Yeah, we'll film it all when we'll... Yeah. See a lot of words get spent. <laughs> and then we, we haven't talked loads about music, but for you guys as film fans, mm-hmm. you know, kind of growing up and, and watching films from film fa- as film fans, what were the films with scores that really resonated with you that still when you either watch that film or you maybe hear a a snippet of that music kind of almost you know yeah it's john williams and so it's it's uh raiders of the lost ark will always put me exactly in a theater seat in Mm -hmm. oakland california you know like in the early 80s watching this guy with a whip you know like it just uh this is amazing Thank you. 
and still John Williams, Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars are all you know pretty iconic for me. I watched Empire Strikes Back at the Royal Albert Hall last oh, Sunday with the amazing. Royal Philharmonic oh. Orchestra with my with my kit. Oh my god, nice. it was amazing! Excellent. They're going. I didn't realize there was so much music in it <laughs> because you know the marriage is so yeah. perfect yeah. that only when you see musicians playing it live do you yeah. realize that the whole film. Yeah, it's pretty continuous. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, this not quite when I was a kid, but since high school, the uh, soundtrack to Chinatown gets me every time. And any time I hear it, mm-hmm. puts me in that mood. And that was a late Jerry Goldsmith. Like, oh, was he replaced? They, yeah, they had a score that, that they didn't like, and they were like, "We have two weeks, Jerry. You want to you <laughs> toss something in there?" Wow. Uh, I think he did pretty well. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> excited as well to see that you uh, guys are working with Andy Machete. Yes. Who uh, we had on the show yes. a couple of weeks ago. Okay. For, for, he's a great guy. Yes. He's great. He's a music geek as well. He's oh, is he? We haven't come up yet. Oh, he's about awesome. That. Okay. That's an exciting yeah. relationship I'm looking forward yeah, to. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah. it's an exciting piece of material and, uh, you know, we worked with the same directors for the last four movies. It's just weird to have somebody yeah. else to talk to. Making you friends. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. What, what do you like? How, but does it feel strange kind of now that, you know, I mean, there's loads going on in that world yeah. you know, in terms of TV shows and all that kind of thing. But, but you know, kind of leaving that behind now. It is like yeah. graduating. It's a little like, you guys, what are you guys doing? Yeah, no, we, we, when we hear they're doing things, like, oh, I guess I just missed that invite. Yeah. So, you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I I think they're handling it so well in terms of like, they're really diversifying and they are taking really, I mean, because you've never had this opportunity before with the streaming thing and the popularity that they have. To take really interesting supporting characters and move them to the to the main character mm. position, you would have never gotten a Wanda and Vision <laughs> show. You know when was this going to happen? Yeah. This is like 
And it is not beating a dead horse. It is like really nourishing these promising things yeah. that you could, and you have the world's greatest cast. So why not? Yeah. How important is that, or is was that is that that main Avengers theme that Alan wrote oh. in terms of <laughs> oh, great. where it started to this you know this final chapter? Well. I just point to the Edinburgh train station scene, right? When you've with that's probably thirty minutes into Infinity War, right? And you haven't seen hiding her hair of Captain America and and uh, Wanda and Vision are in real trouble, and mm. and you finally get it. Oh my God! It just like the train passes and some shadowy figure, you know, grabs a spear from some you know cosmic oh. space lady and <laughs> right, steps into the light, and oh, it's, well, it's the same as. Right before Avengers Assemble, where it's it just it it's, kicks well, that's, in. Well, that's like, where he had to do portals and like he had. To, yeah, no, oh, he, he had, had to do a lot of do work. Do one, you know, not get heroic too soon. So yeah. it was a sort of that, he wrote that dramatic, a and then that was a tough cue into the theme, and it's great. simple little melody. It is. It oh, is. Yeah. And it's become power, iconic now. But the yeah. power of it is just, yeah. Yeah. it's amazing. Oh, He's it's, great. Yeah. I mean, we went around opening night on a on a little party bus and sort of visited some things and... We're going to screenings on that. Yeah. Oh, we wow. went, we, with Alan and the Russos and Kevin and we watched a screening, which was amazing, at UCLA. And as we were leaving... Who got mobbed by the crowd? <laughs> Alan Silvestri. Like, and they were just like, Alan, Alan, one more, one more. It was great. Yes. Um, congratulations. I mean, it's just a, a phenomenon. It really, really is. Thank but you. I'm really excited yes, to see what's next. And thank you so much for your time. No, it's thank a pleasure. You thank, thank you. you. One last time, that is Alan Silvestri's Avengers theme, rounding off the second part of soundtracking with Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. My huge thanks to Chris, Stephen and indeed Bryce for their time. If you head to edithbowman.com, you can catch up with my chats with Alan, the Russo brothers and indeed Andy Machete and subscribe to this podcast. Alternatively, use your preferred podcast provider and please do rate us whilst you're there. 
Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK to find some of the incredible guests who will be joining me in the coming weeks. One of those is Greta Gerwig, who returns to Soundtracking for a second time to discuss the fabulous Little Women. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. But in the meantime, have a fantastic Christmas. Thank you.